the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Clear back in 1979, when Crossroads Bible Church began in a gymnasium of a local college, San Jose wasn't quite still an orchard field, but uh, it certainly has changed a lot in the ensuing 40-plus years. Joining me now with a look at the changing face of not just South Bay, but this phenomenal ministry called Crossroads Bible Church is lead pastor Jeff Schock. And Pastor Schock, welcome. Good to have you with us today. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Boy, you uh, you take over the reins of a church that, as I suggested in my opening comments, has a long and rich history in the San Jose area, birthed out of a group of folks that were um, participants or uh, students at San Jose Bible College back in the late 1970s that I think really had a burden for what they must have recognized as something beginning to change drastically in the South Bay area. And of course, while the greater San Jose region and Santa Clara Valley has always had a deep connection into technology, what with uh, the roots of organizations like Hewlett-Packard and others in that part of the world, um, they must have seen something to recognize not only would this become the technology hub of the entire world, but as we've seen in more recent years, also a magnet for people literally coming from every tribe, every tongue, every continent across the globe, now calling the greater San Jose region home. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to to see what's happened in the Bay Area over the last 40 or so years. And um, I, I kind of wonder what it was like. We still have a few folks that were part of that original crew that founded the church that are still around. And so, um, you know, I get the opportunity to talk to them and uh, hear it from the horse's mouth sort of thing. But it was actually it was at San Jose Christian College, but it was um Los Gatos Christian. It was a church plant from Los Gatos Christian, which is now Venture. And that ministry was thriving. And there were some folks there that God was kind of leading to do something, you know, something adjacent. And and that's how Crossroads got planted. And it did start at the the, uh, San Jose Christian College years ago and um, eventually ended up in the building we're at now on Moore Park Avenue. And tell us a bit about your trajectory. I understand that you have your uh, master's degree in theology from Liberty University School of Divinity. Um, but prior to that, um, my father would insist that I say Semper Fi. Uh, hey, you hey. served in the United States Marine Corps. My father would also say there's no such thing as a former Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. But, right. That's, uh, that goes deep. <laughs> you bet. So tell me a bit about that whole trajectory um, for you. Uh, that that process and and how God first appeared in your life. Well, let me uh, let me see if I can make this brief. I I grew up in the Northeast in New York, um, in the shadow of New York City. Um, I, I everybody I knew was a, a Catholic on Christmas and Easter, pretty much exclusively. And um, I, I you know, my my childhood was a little bit tumultuous. Uh, my, my dad left, my parents got divorced, my mom got cancer. And so right around the start of high school, I jettisoned any kind of faith that I had and I became an atheist. And I, uh, was skeptical, if not antagonistic of Christianity for, for many years. I, I got into a lot of trouble in high school, uh, as one of those prodigals, as we say, right. And, uh, I joined the Marines as an act of self-preservation, Right. <laughs> so I, uh, I did, I did four years and I got out and I stayed in California and, uh, I started working, uh, you know, and I, I met a couple of Christians in Los Angeles of all places and they would share their faith with me and it, it didn't go well most of the time, but eventually I accepted an invitation to go to church and that, that kind of started me on a, a long journey of, um, yeah, long story short, one day I, I bowed my knee, admitted God was God, 
And that changed the trajectory of my life. Here I am 20 years later. So uh, early on, that sense of being, um, shall we say, antagonistic toward the gospel, uh, almost perhaps, dare we say, in a Saul or a Paul <laughs> fashion, maybe not outright persecution, but, but I would imagine a lot of that must have been a sense of, of pent-up frustration, dare I call it anger, in what had transpired with your family, with your parents divorcing, and then your mother's cancer diagnosis? You know, that's that's pretty accurate. I had assumed, and I, I think this is true for a lot of people, that I was rejecting Christianity for logical reasons. And it wasn't until I started to investigate it like sincerely that I found that it was not I had a I had a deep seated vehement emotional reaction to church, Jesus, the Bible, all of it. And so that that kind of made me ask some questions. Have I really rejected Christianity for what I thought was logical reasons uh, when I I was starting to sense they were really kind of emotional? And, uh, you know, that was my early 20s, you know, starting to discover who I was as, as an adult, that kind of stuff. So that was a that was a big realization for me. What was the first big eye opener? I mean, given the fact that you had a a fleeting experience, then you'd gone through the challenges within your family life, eventually your uh, your time in the United States Marine Corps, and then in Los Angeles. Um, What was the thing to you that really made that first impression that caused you to revisit the claims of Christ? Well, I'll tell you, it was probably C.S. Lewis. I was I was working at a health club in L.A. and these these couple of Christians that I mentioned, they worked at this health club, too. And it it probably didn't hurt that they were both like beautiful young women. I ended up marrying one of them as an aside. Um, But they uh, they were they were Christians. One was a pastor's kid. One was a missionary kid. And they were going to college in L.A. and they happened to be working at this gym. And so they would you know, we the faith, the subject of faith would come up. And I'm this argumentative New Yorker, like, who wants to deal with that? So they would just hand me C.S. Lewis books. And uh, they handed me Mere Christianity, one of them. The other one gave me the screw tape letters. It wasn't until years later I, I found out they sell those two bundled on Amazon. But by by uh, the, somewhere around the third chapter of Mere Christianity, my my doubts, which I had sincerely held for a long time were beginning to crumble and uh lewis you know he gave me the first logical um cognitive way that i could i could let my heart go and believe and you know there's no doubt that there's a strong emotional component to christianity i i think in the most naturalist of forms it is a reaction to what under the proper circumstances is a growing deepening budding relationship with very God himself, but oftentimes we tend to have an emotional response in a more, shall we say, fleshy fashion. That means either moments of ecstasy that are not necessarily rooted in anything that has a a, a biblical foundation, or moments of anger where we just simply lash out because the, the feelings are so strong and there seems to be that disconnection between the head and the heart. And while there's certainly a strong heart component to our faith, that that sense of being able to argue based on fact, the historicity of the scripture, the archaeology that supports it, the eyewitness testimony, so many of these issues that if we were exploring Christ in the same fashion that we would say be investigating a homicide or a burglary, we're going to interview witnesses, we're going to gather information, we're going to observe circumstances, and then we're going to begin to to form and draw some conclusions. And so it's interesting because oftentimes Christianity seems to be dismissed as sort of the check-your-brains-at-the-door religion, when in fact, as I think you discovered in the writings of C.S. Lewis and your own personal faith journey, that um, while, yes, there is indeed a, a emotional component um, or a heart component to all of this, there's also a very strong intellectual, uh, compelling argument for the validity of who Jesus claims to be. Yeah, that's that's completely right. I was shocked to find out there were really, really compelling reasons to believe. I had grown up, and I had asked, I had asked my religion teacher and my parents, "Can you give me a rational, a rational explanation for how this can be true?" And 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 no one could. And so when I began reading, and it was 
right around the time where uh, Case for Christ, Lee Strobel's book was kind of, you know, top in the charts. And that was another, you know, that was another resource that God put in my path. And um, there are really compelling reasons to believe. And that's one of the it's one of the things that I think God has just put on my heart to shout from the rooftops, especially here in Silicon Valley, where there is, you know, you can, the skepticism is, is pretty thick. You can cut it with a knife, but there's a lot of data points that people just haven't considered. And I find when you can appropriate some of those arguments, C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, the rest, you can start to see the scales fall from people's eyes, or at least they, you know, they, they step back a little and like, huh, I never thought of that. And I'm curious, you know, nothing happens by accident, right? In in God's economy, everything is for a reason. As you look back over your own life journey and your trajectory from casual, circumstantial faith, you know, Easter and Christmas, as you say, um, into being a full-on doubter, if not aggressively anti-Christian, to eventually coming full circle and into the fullness of who Christ is. Um, any accident that you wind up in Northern California in a part of the state that probably has not only one of the highest concentrations of educated people. I mean, you don't have to go far to run into doctors and PhDs and certainly within the engineering community, PEs and people of that sort that have taken years, they've studied, they're serious about what they do. It's, you know, it's kind of the, the, the dragnet, the facts and nothing but the facts kind of approach. Did, did that, in a sense, prepare you for the minister you have today at Crossroads? That's a good question. I, I, I You know, I'm sure it has to an extent and maybe only God knows the full extent, but um, it is interesting. My wife and I, when we were married about 10 years, we we just felt God was calling us to something more uh, ministry-wise. So we almost became missionaries. And we were going to go to uh, to Mexico, and, and we had a whole team around us, and there was an organization and, and so forth. And through praying through that calling, we ended up not going through that door. It didn't seem like you know, two gringos with barely passable Spanish and a mountain of student debt was really, that's what God had for us. But then lo and behold, a few years after that, um, he brings us back to Silicon Valley uh, to pastor this church. And uh, the further we go, the more I, the more I see, oh, this is what God had in mind all along. He was, he was preparing us for this for years and years. And so that's the sense we have at, at this at this point in our ministry. And, you know, the irony is, uh, and part of me, if this seems to be, you know, contradicting what you just said in terms of the original pathway towards missions work, and then that kind of short-circuiting God had other plans, but in a very real way, and perhaps even in a more significant way, you really are working as a missionary. And by that, I mean, if we look at the, the dynamic, the makeup of the San Francisco Bay Area, my goodness, I, I don't know that there's anything that is cross-representational of the entire planet. We have people that come from every continent, from every sort of religious tradition, be it Hinduism or Buddhism or uh, old school mainstream, uh, mainline Christendom to no faith at all. And they come from every continent and they arrive here in the San Francisco Bay Area because of business opportunities or high-tech opportunities. And so you open up the front door of your home in the South Bay and there lies before you left, right, and center, the mission field. So in a real sense, it, it, would it be true that you are really a missionary in, in one form or another? Yeah, and that's that's the way that we see it, and that's the way that uh, we we talk about the work God's put us to in, in terms of our congregation. Um, we always at least traditionally missionaries, the ones that go overseas to, you know, the, the developing world, et cetera. Everybody came here. Uh, we have dozens of countries represented, not, and not just ethnicities. We have nationalities represented in, in my congregation, which isn't terribly big, um, but there are dozens of countries represented. So it's pretty interesting. And then a lot of the folks who are moving to the Bay Area are coming from places that are um, they're, they're non-Christian, they're non-Western, they're, they're non-white, and it's an opportunity. I mean, here we are. It's Silicon Valley, San Jose specifically, arguably one of the most influential places in all of human history. 
right? You could make the case for Egypt and, you know, ancient Athens, but this, this place, ideas that start here ripple across the, the globe. And there's Crossroads, this little tiny uh, church literally on the crossroads of, um, you know, uh, one of the most influential places on the planet. So I, I do consider it missions work and we have, we do try to get that across um, whenever we talk about what we're doing as a church. You know, I want, I want the folks that go to Crossroads to feel like they're on mission. This, that, that mission missionaries. And that's not some people across the pond. That's what, that's what we're doing. That's what we're about. Give me your sense, burden or blessing. I ask that because some look at this and say, wow, trying to relate to so many different traditions, uh, particularly those that, that would be outside of our, our comfort level, so to speak, outside of the, the, the Western approach to life, and say, wow, I, you know, it's not just that there are an occasional linguistic barrier, but there are traditional barriers, there are societal barriers that present so many challenges. Uh, this kind of, of, of ministry uh, can be a huge burden. Then there are those that say, oh, no, no, to the contrary. What a phenomenal blessing, because not only does it teach the congregation to grow, to be flexible, to be open-minded, but to also learn how to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, that sense of Paul, you know, when he said, I'm, I'm all things to all men that I might win some, in recognizing that, well, the missionary that's headed to Mexico only ne- needs to learn to speak Spanish, and you only need to deal with the Hispanic culture. But if you're here... <laughs> It is, as we said earlier, really a cross-section of the entire world in which some might say this is not a, a, a negative. This is, in fact, very positive because it really calls upon the church to be the church in every sense of the word and also calls upon the church to be reflective of what the greater body of Christ looks like. I have a, an idea in my mind that when we all get to heaven, there's not going to be the Presbyterian section and the, and the uh, Methodist section and the Pentecostal section. There's not going to be the Italian section and the French section. There's just going to be all of us together worshiping God for all eternity. And so I wonder if, in a real sense, while this might present some burden that in the end, in the final analysis, it really presents a blessing. What do you think? Well, I, I think both of those are right. It, it is a burden. Ministry in, in the Silicon Valley is challenging for a number of reasons. I have friends and colleagues uh, you know, across the country, some of them in the Bible Belt, where even the atheists are Baptist, you know, and uh, and and you know we have you know the coffers are full and the pews are full and the cost the cost of doing business is low and you know um, I but for me I you know I, there's a fondness for this mission that's been growing since God brought us here and you know initially it was just oh my gosh the challenges but as we've as we've kind of moved forward in faith we just um, I wouldn't trade it. It's it's uh, it's a really special place. Just Silicon Valley generally, but Crossroads in particular. Um, I, I we have I think there's only two native English speakers on our staff. Most of them are from Korea and the Philippines, and um, you know all over uh, Mexico, Central America, and so it's a really diverse community, and it's a cross section of the larger uh, the larger population. We've got. Old people, young people, you know, people whose families have been been here for a long time and people who are first generation immigrants. And so it's uh, it's really interesting. There are challenges. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I as, as it happens, I found out that I like challenges. And so maybe I'm a little twisted that way. But maybe that's the influence of your time in the Marine Corps. <laughs> it might be. There's it nothing be. easy about this at all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. About like, it. Me, give me something challenging yeah. and, and where you just have to not quit. So. And, I, and I think, you know, there there is an inclination in the flesh to want it to go to where the ministry is easiest. As you say, where, you know, the offering plate is full on Sunday and we can't, we don't have enough room to, to even accommodate one more kid in Sunday school class. The church is full. The choir loft is full. That's all great and well. But I think there's also a distinction between working where the ministry is the easiest versus working where the need is the greatest. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we see the need. I mean, it's smacking us in the face every day. I mean, San Jose is really interesting. We lived here, oh, about 15 years ago and then moved to New York for, uh, you know, a, a season. And now we're back. And I've got to watch San Jose kind of grow up from being a um, a robust suburb to being a kind of city with all of the all the things there are too pertaining, the good and the bad, the the urban decay and the rest of it. And I'm consistently meeting people. You know, you, you see all the statistics about the nuns, people have no religious background. You can read the stats, but then when you talk to the people and you re- we did a series on Abraham a while back and I had folks coming to the church that never heard of Abraham. They thought we were talking about Abraham Lincoln. And so I get I get to share with these folks the the real brass tacks the 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 highlights the thing the things that make Jesus beautiful and I get to be the person who who explains it to them for the first very first time which is a high honor and privilege for sure it's a pretty phenomenal opportunity I mean you know scripture certainly mandates that we take the gospel into Judea Samaria the uttermost parts of the earth and I know by the way for the benefit of listeners that your church is also active in overseas missions you support a number of missionaries in in various and diverse places Thailand uh, Venezuela elsewhere um but that sense of of Judea it, right out the front door and you know the one benefit of ministry in the San Francisco Bay area is you don't have to travel very far to find people that have never heard of the gospel who think Abraham is Abraham Lincoln I never heard that before <laughs> and and so as a result you know the, the opportunity for us to um demonstrate our faith, to shine our light before men, is all around us. And what a joy and a privilege. And I think in some respects, um, God has called us for such a time as this, for such a place as this. Because as you alluded to earlier, this part of the world has always been the trendsetters. You know, the old adage is, as goes the Bay Area, so goes the state, as so goes the state, so goes the nation, and beyond. And so in many respects, you know, we we like to sometimes look at the glass as being half full and uh, versus half empty. And, you know, I think that this is a case where it is indeed half full because the opportunities for ministry and the ability to impact literally the globe lie literally at our fingertips. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the folks that are coming here, you know, another challenge that's also a challenge and a blessing is how transient the area is, right? You have a lot of people here, and I think last time I looked, the average tech employee spends about four out four years in the Bay Area. So they're they're coming here for a season to build their resume for professional opportunities, education, whatever it is. And and then they're going to go, they're going to move on. They may go back to their country of origin. And so we have this tremendous opportunity to, uh, the, the revolving door, it's not easy to manage, but there are people that come through our church, they're there for a season, and prayerfully, hopefully, they get the gospel, they have a deep understanding of what it means, and then they, they go on and they're a resource and a blessing wherever they end up going. So you've got the double blessing opportunity here, not just to feed his sheep, but also to train his missionaries, because in a sense, they come, they get ministered to, uh, they learn of the word, they get fired up. And then, as you say, after a season, they move on to wherever on might be. And hopefully they take with them a burden for the lost and the capacity to to not only be a disciple, but to be disciple makers. And so in, in a real sense, a big part of what you do is is preparing missionaries. How exciting. It is exciting. It is exciting. And I love I love seeing people from all the different cultures that end up darkening our doorway, responding to the gospel and then like in unique ways. Right. Because, um, you know, for for your like your native Bay Area person who's just a secular person who's never heard the gospel, the gospel transforms them in a really different way than it does somebody who's maybe uh, like who's just immigrated from India and has you know, a completely different understanding and faith paradigm that they're coming at it with. So it is a, it's a very interesting dynamic. I think it's pretty unique. Uh, we're one of the most diverse places in the country, if not the world, right? So there's probably not a lot of places where you see this dynamic as, uh, as clear as you do here in Silicon Valley. One of the things that I'm struck by in the ministry of Crossroads Bible Church. And if you've just tuned in late, we're visiting today with lead pastor Jeff Schock of Crossroads. But one of the things that that strikes me is, you know, if we look at the 
the earthly ministry of Jesus, with very few exceptions, every time that he went out to minister, to proclaim who he was and why he came, it was generally preceded by some act of addressing felt needs, whether it might be a conversation with the woman at the well, to feeding the 5,000, to restoring sight to the blind, helping the lame to walk. He always acknowledged that sense of compassion for the human condition and the suffering that all of us go through as a result of, of our own innate sin nature. And so that ability to demonstrate his love by addressing felt needs, I think, is, is certainly something that um, can and should be passed on to his descendants, to the church that carries that same message to this very day. And, and toward that end, I take note that Crossroads is involved in everything from um, helping to minister to the poor of the community, homeless. Um, you have a tutoring program, which I think is just a brilliant idea. Uh, particularly, you know, you think about all the retirees out there that have got years of business experience and know-how. They hit 67, they retire, they sit home all day, read the newspaper and, and drive their spouse nuts, right? Instead, an opportunity to engage them in, in mentoring and passing on that knowledge and helping young people that are struggling scholastically. And then finally, and we know this, and it certainly got highlighted during COVID, and that is the number of people that just struggle with the high cost of living and rent in the Bay Area. Things as simple that we take granted for, like putting food on the table, is a challenge for a lot of folks. And so you guys also operate a food pantry. And I would imagine that, that all three of those elements that I just mentioned are, are quite intentional as a part of Crossroads Ministry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I came to Crossroads in May of 2018, I, I exited Bascom Avenue on the Moore Park, and there was a 75-yard in homeless, homeless encampment. And uh, there was just garbage everywhere and people on the streets. And, and that community that Crossroads is in, uh, the Rose Glen neighborhood right there, it's, it's one of the, I think it's the fourth or fifth poorest zip code in the city. So the area itself is one of those rough, rough patches. And as I was pulling off the freeway and I was looking at all that, I, I heard God real clearly say that he was, he was about to do something about all of that. And over the last five years as a church, we've been endeavoring to, to just be a light in that community. And um, we do it, we, we unofficially call it an ecosystem of love. And so there's our sister Spanish church, Verbo. Uh, they meet at 2 p.m. They, they partner with us, and we, we pull off this food pantry um, on Tuesdays and Saturdays. And between the two churches, we average somewhere around like 2,000 people a month wow. that we feed, somewhere around 500 families. A lot of them are just based in that little community. And, of course, this is in connection with uh, Second Harvest Food Bank, and we're, we couldn't do it alone. Um, but... In connection with that, we get a lot of these families, and many of them are, are you know, Spanish language speaking, um, first generation. And so um, we have, we do have some, it's Silicon Valley, we have some overeducated people. <laughs> so we got them together, and now we have a tutoring program that goes, uh, that goes through the school year where we can come alongside these families and help the kids understand common core math and 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 the whole heart of it is we're not just um we're not just doing a one-off event where where the church is going to help the community and give away some stuff and then pat ourselves on the back this is a a, a sustained uh systemic pervasive initiative to love our community as best as we can and and as i said you know we're a small church but it's it's been through um strategic partnerships with other churches, outside organizations, anybody like, you know, anybody who's down, down to make a difference, they can partner with us essentially. And I love that approach because as you point out, you know, oftentimes, and I think out of a sense of guilt, we'll, we'll get involved in some feel good project that for the moment satisfies our sense of I've done my part and then we go about business as usual and meanwhile the suffering in the community and the neighborhood around us continues then there's the good do good approach that says 
We're in this for the long haul. We're in this to make a difference. And I think some of the strategic partnerships that you alluded to in in making this work makes the difference. And, you know, it's easy, and I think particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, when we see what's going on in downtown San Francisco, certainly in Oakland, and in places like parts of the South Bay, East San Jose, et cetera, it's easy to pound our fist on the table and say, the government needs to do something. Where are the politicians? What's City Hall doing? You know, at the end of the day, City Hall can build tents, they can open up soup kitchens, they can provide, you know, emergency medical services. But the one thing that they can't address is the one thing that is systemic and is at the core of many of these societal problems, and that's what's going on with the heart. And the heart is only going to change when there's an encounter with Jesus Christ. And the last time I checked, Government was very poor at disseminating the gospel. But if the church does that and then uses strategic partnerships to be able to address the felt needs and then can, as part of its primary goal, address the spiritual needs, just as Jesus did, I think we can change the world. I 100% agree. And, you know, I, I, I heard Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, say this years and years ago. Where, you know, there's a um, the the caricature is that, you know, you do word ministry on one side. You have those folks on the street corners on soapboxes preaching. And then, you you know, some other denominations are really good at meeting felt needs. And, you know, his he always maintained that you do both of those at the same time. You tell people about a God of love and mercy and grace. And then you show them what that actually looks like. It's not either or it's both and. Yeah, at the at the same time. And so that's. I mean, that's one of the reasons um, we we have Verbo is our Spanish language church pastor. Edwin Milan is a great, great pastor. He's a, a bilingual, bivocational guy, works in tech. And uh, my Spanish is deplorable. So I'm never going to reach that community. Maybe maybe, maybe maybe God had his hand in keeping you out of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. Uh, and he brought a he brought a great pastor who is who is fluent and reaching that community. And so um, that's one of the, the ways that we minister to them is we platform this our sister church so that they can connect with these families. For folks, Pastor Shock, that have been eavesdropping on our conversation today, and they think, "Wow, I like what this guy's had to say," and I certainly find what Crossroads is doing to be very attractive. Take a few moments, if you would, please, and tell us a bit about what all is going on at Crossroads Bible Church and the various ministries that are available to folks in the Bay Area. Sure. Well, obviously, we have our our Sunday services at 930 and 11. Um, We have our kids ministry. My my wife leads that, so I'm a little biased. I think it's pretty awesome. My kids are enthusiastic, too, so I'll say that. And uh, we also have all the mercy ministries, and that's what we call them here. Uh, So the pantry, the Tuesday night uh, food distribution, the tutoring program. um, Gosh, I'm forgetting a couple. There's our our downtown outreach. Um, So there's a lot of opportunities for people to roll their sleeves up and help out. Um, Those things you can you can find more out more about them online. Oh, and if I can plug if I can plug it, September 17th. After our 11 a.m. service, we're having a, a we're having a we're having a party. We're having a huge festival to to bless our community. Uh, there's going to be live music and and tons of food, and it's a celebration of all the cultures that are represented in that community. So you know each each different culture is going to have its own food tent, and there'll be authentic dress and and that kind of stuff. Bounce house for the kids. And so that's September 17th, and uh, the San Jose earthquakes are going to be all, all those nonprofits that we work with, like downtown streets team and prosperity labs all the rest they'll be there to to get resources into the community as well and all of this will be taking place there on the campus at 1670 moore park that's right and as we mentioned if you're new to the san francisco bay area looking for a new church home visiting the area like to check them out we invite you to uh, join in sunday morning services times at 9 30 a.m and again at 11 a.m the church is located at 1670 moore park avenue in san jose check them out online at cbc think crossroads bible church cbc life dot o-r-g or call them at area code 408 288 4115. Pastor Jeff Schock, lead pastor from Crossroads Bible Church, San Jose. What a delight to get a chance to know you, and we sure appreciate you carving some time out of your schedule for us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a privilege. 
Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just, before we get into this new series and today's teaching, I want to give a special shout out to my guy, He Chan. There he is. He Chan, uh, for those of you who don't know, He Chan leads our young adult ministry. And RG, our worship director, has been on his honeymoon for like a year. And so He Chan has been holding it down every week. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been doing a couple of uh, changes up here and the, the lights and the speakers and all that stuff. So nothing worked today. Like they had no monitors, there's no bass, and they still sounded awesome, didn't they? Yeah, give it up for this team. So grateful for He Chan and the rest of the team that lead us in worship every week. Uh, without further ado, let me turn to today's text. If you have in your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. I'll read this passage of Scripture, and then we'll get into our new series. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And this is the word of the Lord. For about the last 50 or 75 years, the church in the Western industrialized world has been in precipitous decline. I read a book 25 years ago that said uh, by the year, I think it was 2024 or something like that, uh, that roughly 12% of the American populace would be church-attending Christians. And sure enough, that statistic absolutely came to fruition. That is just about where the statistical reality lies right now. And if... um, If you're a student of church history, and we talk about that quite a bit here, about how the Christian church got off the ground and so forth, there is a phenomenon, uh, lots of historians have have kind of described this, we've talked about it here, how when when Christians, when they they look like Jesus, when they're they're really dying to themselves, following the word of God, when they have the heart of Jesus within them, the church and the gospel become so winsome. You can read about, you know, there's a, a historian by the name of Rodney Stark, and he's written extensively about how the early church got off the ground. And one of the, uh, the key linchpin historical moments for the church was in the second and third centuries when plagues swept the urban centers in the ancient world in and around Rome. And what happened was, you know, people get plagued, it's a bad scene, people are dying everywhere. So if you had means, you left the city, you went to the hills, you went to the mountains. But some Christians, healthy Christians, despite not being sick, stayed. And they took care of plague victims, the other Christians who had fallen sick. And then Stark records that not only did they care for their own sick, but they cared for the other people, people who are not a part of their faith community, but people who had been befallen, you know, gotten sick, and and quite frequently these Christians, in the course of nursing these people who are afflicted by plague, died as a result of their efforts. And then the people that they nursed back to health saw the selflessness, the self-forgetfulness, the generosity of spirit that they would be willing to lift their lives, risk their lives to take care of people, other people who they had no substantial connection with. 
And that testimony, that witness is one of the things that historians agree. That is why the Christian church got its legs under her so quickly and became the dominant faith tradition from England to Northern Africa in just a couple hundred years. My hypothesis is this. When Christians actually look like Jesus, when you get the heart of Christ in your chest beating, now the watching world has something to look at. And I would, I would just offer, by way of kind of a, a counterpoint to that, also kind of illustrates the point, that I've been doing ministry from the West Coast to the East Coast. I've ministered in New York and San Francisco and San Jose for over 20 years. And I've served in high church, and I've served in low church, and I've served in very conservative shirt and tie churches, and I've served in whatever this is. Some of you have flip-flops on. It's okay. I have noticed a consistent pattern in the predominant number of Christians that I have met. And I think this is rather rampant in the industrialized West. Because we live on the heels of enlightenment, we have appropriated the social construct which says something along the lines of live your best life now. And so what I frequently encounter in people is, is, not, a, um, is not a desire to follow Christ to, to die to yourself, to take up your cross and carry it daily, but rather I see people that will be a part of a covenant community if it checks all the boxes, if they have a good kids program, if the pastor's funny, if the worship team is good, oh, we'll be a part. Of, and so what typifies, at least from my reckoning, and this is my functioning hypothesis, take it or leave it, the functioning uh, kind of philosophy is a lot of people is I'll be a part of that community if my needs are met, if you have all the programs I'm looking for. And so the, the, you know, the, the, this particular permutation of Christianity doesn't look like dying to yourself. It doesn't look like being imitators of Christ Jesus. In Philippians, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter five, verse one, Paul says, be imitators of Christ. That word in Greek is the word mimetai. It's the word we get mimic from. Picture a mime you know, like this. You're, so what Paul is saying is that if you're following Jesus, following Jesus looks like imitating Christ. Loving who he would love, how he would love them, and with the same passion and enthusiasm he has. How you doing? So that's why we're launching this series, The Heart of Jesus. Because we are in one of the least churched places in the hemisphere you know, the missionaries never made it to the West Coast, and that's why Seattle, Portland, and the San Francisco Bay Area are some of the least religious places in the country. And there is just a small percentage of the overall population of the Bay Area that actually is sitting in church on a Sunday morning. And so we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and I have a hypothesis. And it's that if we actually looked and sounded like Jesus this message of God's grace and his love and his mercy would be so winsome. And our testimony would be so, uh, you know, uh, profound that it would mean something to the watching world. And just like people looked in on the Christians that were going to their deaths in the Colosseum singing hymns of praise, the Christians that cared for plague victims at the cost of their own lives, people would look in on Jesus's bride, his church, his people, and say, wow, look at that. So we want to look this morning at the heart of Jesus, and this passage we just read talks about something that is foundational and I hope undergirds the rest of this series. We're talking about generosity, and generosity means so much more than what you do with your money. So let's look at this text this morning. I want to look at this text, and we're going to ask three questions. What is it? What does it look like? and how you can become truly, truly generous. First, what is it? This narrative we read, Jesus is telling a parable. A parable is not an actual event. Rather, Jesus is telling a story to illustrate a point. And in this story, there are two men. One is a tax collector, and the other is a Pharisee. Now, tax collectors, like, they're not really celebrated public figures, right? You never go like talk to a kid in the garden and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they don't say, I want to work for the IRS. Nobody says that, right? Maybe some of you did, but you're twisted. Um, they want to be astronauts. They want to be firemen. Why? Because tax collectors, even here in this place and time, get a kind of a bad rap. However, 
What you have to realize is that in the first century, in Israel, being a tax collector was like the worst possible thing. It's way worse than it is now. And the reason is because Israel had been, they, they kind of got kicked around the ancient Near East for a thousand years. They were subjugated by the Egyptians. They, they got out of Egypt. Then they were subjugated by the Babylonians. They got out of Babylon. And then uh, Julius, uh, not Julius, Alexander the Great marches all over the ancient Near East, conquering everybody. And they're subjugated again. And the, the Romans came in on the heels of the Greeks and they oppressed the Hebrew people. And the oppression of the Hebrew people, yes, it was violent in some senses, but the predominant way that they were oppressed was financial. They would, some historians record that, the people living in Israel in the first century were taxed up to 90% of their income, right? Some of you end up taxed like 30 and you're you're fighting mad about it, right? Can you imagine 90%? Can you imagine? Because what happened was Caesar needed needed his cut and then Herod needed his cut and the tax collectors, they would just skim a little off the top. That's why it was a, that's why it was a good job to have. It was, it was, you know, monetarily incentivized, that kind of a thing. And so people hated them. The thing that made it even worse was that, you know, Israel was ruled at, at this time by a tetrarch and Pilate was the, the, he was a prefect. He was a Roman appointee. But they didn't hire Romans to do this work. You know who they hired? They hired Jews. They hired Hebrew people to be the instrument of oppression against the Hebrew people. These people were viewed as race traitors. Can you imagine the, the way that, uh, you know, when the, Nazi, uh, when the Nazi regime marched all over Western Europe, in Belgium, in France, there were people who colluded with the Nazis. They were like sympathizers. And they were regarded as some of the most violent, detestable people because they had, what, traded on their own countrymen for like a monetary return. This is how tax collectors were viewed. I ho- and, and by the way, Jesus is telling this story to paint a, a, a sharp and interesting contrast. So here you have tax collectors, who's the other guy in the story? A Pharisee. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you know that Pharisees get a bad rap, right? Even I know, I remember I did youth ministry for years and years, and it was kind of like a, a, it was like a negative derogatory term church kids would call each other. You're a Pharisee. You know, it's not a good thing, Right? You could read in Luke's gospel earlier, he has the, the seven woes. He's saying, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you den of vipers, he calls them. So Pharisees kind of get a bad rap, but here's what you need to know about the Pharisees. There were three schools, uh, two, three, I guess, ecumenical or religious schools in Jesus' day. There were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the dominant uh, politically, uh, they, had, they had all the juice. There were 40 people on the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council of Jews. 38 of them were Sadducees in the first century. So uh, they were the dominant political establishment, but what they, they were not particularly pious, and they were parading around like religious people. Remember, this is a theocracy, but everybody knew they weren't the real article. Everybody knew that they were just dirty politicians, And then, within Judaism, there comes this reformed movement. And those were the Pharisees. And the word Pharisee means, like, pious or devout ones, right? And and it's it's interesting because you do see Jesus kind of making fun of them and lambasting them at several places through the Gospels. But he even says to them, like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You pray with giant phylacteries, which is the word they use in the King James. It's a prayer box. And so they would carry a prayer box with scrolls written with prayers written and I'm on the neck and these guys had really big ones like run DMC went to church some of you'll get that later right and so Jesus is he's he's always criticizing them for this outward show of religion but that was their shtick they were the ones who were actually keeping the commands they were the ones that were actually keeping Torah they were the ones that were actually eating kosher they kept all the religious you know statutes and so they would have been viewed as like oh that's the real article not like these Sadducees, these political appointees. That's the real article. That's what God's people are supposed to be. They're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be pious. They're supposed to keep all the commands and all the rules and all the statutes. And so they would have enjoyed some favor with the people. They were populist. Not only that, what does this guy say? He says, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even this tax collector. What does he say? Verse 12, I fast twice a week. And give a tenth of all I get. 
he fasts twice a week. Not once a week. He fasts twice a week. And he gives a tenth of everything he gets. This man is a pillar of the community. This man, when he walks down the street, people, people whisper, oh, there he goes. I wish I was like him. I wish my life was that put together. Look at his family. They look so good on Facebook. This guy enjoys the favor of everybody who's looking in. All the watching eyes are looking on him. Yet, something really confusing happens in this story. It is not this man who goes home justified. And I got to point out, he gives 10% of his income. He is incredibly philanthropic. Do you know that America, on an individual basis, is the most generous country on earth? Americans per capita give a higher percentage of their income away than any other people in the world. And the average in America is 3%. That number actually goes way down once you get to people who make more than $60,000 a year. This guy gives away 10% of his income. 10%. He is extremely philanthropic. He's a pillar of the community. He keeps the statutes. He keeps Torah. He eats kosher. He is, the, he is an image of orthodoxy. Yet he is the one who is not justified. What on earth does this mean? What is this go, what's going on here? Well, when you talk about real generosity, you've got to ask yourself, like, where, do, where does it come from? And it comes from the heart. And this is why this man is not actually viewed in any kind of heroic terms in this story. I've got to read you what it says in 1 Samuel. Samuel is called. He's going to appoint a king of Israel. And, and all of these sons come before him. And one of them is especially tall and handsome and strong. And this is what, this is what it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see what's happening here? You see this Pharisee, and he's saying, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. And then he goes ahead and he gives a list of his superlatives, his accomplishments, his resume. And and what is he basically saying? He's, He's talking about himself, and he's looking down at everyone else. And so this, this man, quite literally, he's, he, he gives, he's generous, he has an open purse, but a closed heart. He, he might be generous financially and monetarily, but he is not generous in spirit. He is not generous with people and the way he esteems them and the way he regards them. He's got a very one-dimensional kind of generosity. And what we're finding out here is that it does not pass muster. This is not the kind of generosity that occupies the heart of Jesus. This is a a, a surface-level, cursory generosity. It's not not a, a corporate, pervasive generosity. It's not generosity of the heart. This is something different. Now, you can you can give your money away. And you can do it with an expectation that now somebody is going to regard you differently, better, see you as generous, see you in a certain kind of positive light. And that's not actual generosity. You're just purchasing someone's approval. You can give your money away and you can say, yes, 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 but there's all kinds of strings attached to it. Not actually generosity. The heart of Jesus, the generous heart of Jesus is after something entirely different. And this is why in verse 13, where, where you see the tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you find out that internally he is quite different than his tax collector because the tax collector externally on the surface looks very generous. He looks noble. He looks disciplined. Right? He, he's got it all together on the surface. But inside, his heart is as cold as stone. He's incredibly stingy when it comes to the way he regards other people. And as a contrast to that, we see this tax collector, and what is he doing? He is beating his chest. He is contrite. He is penitent before God, and he says, have mercy on me. Mercy. And that word means like undeserved favor. When you look at the Bible in the New Testament specifically, there's, there's three words for love that are used most commonly. There's the word phileo, which means brotherly love, like Philadelphia. And there's the word eros, and that means like uh, the, the love between a husband and wife, like the word you get erotic from. 
The word that is used for God's love is in either of those is the word agape. And the root word for agape is a word that actually means charity. It means a generous love where it's not deserved. And that's what this man is asking for. He says, God, be generous with me. God, have mercy on me. And you see the condition of his heart. He has a humble, contrite, penitent heart. And that's the reason that he leaves justified. So what is it? It comes from the heart. What does it look like? Well, we got this really interesting kind of narrative that seems just pinned on to the end of that story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Let me read it again. Verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them, but Jesus called the children to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Why is this right on the heels of the story with the tax collector and the Pharisee? Why would they include, there's a couple of sentences in here about, you know, apparently they're doing baby dedications, the disciples aren't all about that, and Jesus says, no, let the babies come to me. Why? Well, the disciples were, were very generous. We know from the scriptures that they tithed. We, they were generous in terms of ministry. You recall a couple of times they're going out, uh, like leaving everything and going out in service of God and healing the sick and, and casting out demons and the rest. So they're very generous in terms of, of ministry and very generous financially. But here there seems to be something else going on. They are not generous with little children. Why is that? Well, you think about it, it's pretty easy to recognize this. If you've got a, if you're a part of a, an organization or some kind of clique or a unit and, you know, you've got your leader and he's out doing things, they're interested in Jesus doing ministry that's going to have a return on investment, right? You're going to the lunch. Are you, are you pressing the flesh with, with the hob, you know, are you hobnobbing with the brass? Are you, are you engaging in ministry with people that will elevate your standing or bring some kind of return on investment? Maybe people of means and resources that might keep the coffers full. And the disciples see babies and they're like, they can't do anything for us. So they are, they are like the Pharisee, they are generous in some areas, but not all areas. They have a generosity when it comes to ministry. They have a generosity when it comes to money. But here they are and their social circle and their network, they are stingy and tight. So if you want to know what real generosity is and if you want to check your heart, pervasive corporate generosity is going to extend to every area of your life. You're not going to, you're not, and it's completely possible, right? You can have an open checkbook and, and not actually be generous. That's the deal with the tax, uh, the, the Pharisee right? You can, and, and hey man, if the shoe fits, let's just say like you really, really value your personal space, right? And he's like, well, I'll give money to that thing. I'll open the checkbook, no problem. But don't ask me to like hang out with a bunch of people and roll my sleeves up in order to meet some needs somewhere, right? And you don't mind maybe giving money to the church, but when it comes to like, you know, opening your home and having people in like, I got to get dirt on my carpet, mm. So you can be generous in one area of your life, apparently externally, but not actually have the generous heart of Jesus inside you. But if you do have the generous heart of Jesus, this is a canary in the cage. I used this a couple of weeks ago and people didn't understand it. Let me explain the metaphor. Back in the day, when you would go down into a mine shaft, guys would wear helmets with a little canary in a cage. Really, legit, Google it. And what would happen is if there was methane in the mine, the little birds were far more susceptible to the methane. And so when the bird passed out, when the bird died, it was time to get out of the mine. This is a canary in the cage for, for discerning whether you have the heart of Christ in you. Are you generous in every area of your life? Pastor Jeff Schock, lead pastor of Crossroads Bible Church of San Jose. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. 
thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.